This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Since the publication of her debut novel in 1997, Josie Lloyd has written a string of bestsellers, including the international smash hit Come Together, which she co-authored with her husband, Emlyn Rees. Although her books are a celebration of life, love and friendship, she has never shied away from more difficult subjects. But she invariably does so with a sense of hope and humour. This was particularly true of her 2021 novel, The Cancer Ladies Running Club, which she wrote in the wake of her own diagnosis with breast cancer. The novel, published in the US as The Brightside Running Club, is now being made into a movie of the same name. And its themes of finding positivity through fitness and friendship are continued in Josie's latest book, Life Saving for Beginners. Written during lockdown, it too touches on some dark subject matter, But, as ever, Josie's light touch is there to remind us of some of the things that lockdown gave us, as well as recognising what it took away. Josie says literature should be there to hold up a mirror for people to find themselves in, and I always try to find the funny in life. Before I introduce Josie, here's a clip of Lucy Scott narrating Lifesaving for Beginners. But even the thought that she needs time away from her family makes her feel unworthy and wretched. She knows the whole Covid thing has been much worse for the kids, although Ash says he's happy being at home. But she worries he's not developing the social skills he should. Much as she loves her baby being her baby, he's nearly ten, and she knows he needs to branch out on his own. Felix is just as much of a worry, and his teenage years suddenly feel all too imminent, He only seems to communicate with her in grunts, and she resents the fact that he and Pim spend hours and hours playing Fortnite. And now they've corrupted Ash, too. But if blowing things up on a screen is what makes them happy and gets them through until life gets a bit more normal, then, according to Pim, they should just go with it. So Claire puts up and shuts up. She'll make a date and walnut cake for tea time as a treat, she decides, mentally adding baking powder to her shopping list. She's annoyed that she can't reach her handbag for her notebook to write it down. Her brain is like a sieve these days. The boys relentlessly take the piss about her forgetfulness. Even Pim had joined in on Christmas Day, when they'd mimicked her, clicking her fingers and saying, Pass me the thingamabob in the watsit. It has become a family catchphrase. She knows they mean it affectionately, but it stings nevertheless. As she sets off, she glances across to the beach, surprised to see a few women playing in the waves in the distance. The way they bend over with laughter makes her do a double take. It looks like they're having fun. On Christmas morning, when a few of the neighbours were out on the street, Claire had gone outside to catch her neighbour Jenna and wish her Happy Christmas. She'd been dressed in one of those giant camouflage dry robes and was off to the beach with a gang of friends. Jenna had told Claire to come too, but Claire had declined. She's 44, and the days of exposing her body to the public are long gone. She'd feel far too flabby and saggy in front of super-fit Jenna and her shiny friends. 
Maybe she should push herself out of her comfort zone and go next time, though, she thinks. With the new year coming, she needs to do something to shake things up. She can't keep on making resolutions and breaking them. Even so, she reaches across the dashboard to the cubbyhole, where she knows Ash has left half a packet of Tang Fastics. The new regime can start in January. Josie Lloyd, welcome to My Life in Books. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Red. Life-saving for beginners is very much a celebration of open water swimming, which is something that not all the listeners might see the attraction of. And that also goes for your protagonist, Maddie. We first join her on Christmas Day in her seemingly picture-perfect life, but it's all about to capsize. Could you introduce her and tell us a bit more about her life? Maddie is an Instagrammer and she's built this perfect house, seemingly perfect house, and she's recorded it brick by brick, shot by shot uh, for her millions of Instagram followers. And so she's completely beholden to this Instagram behemoth that she's created. And she has um, a husband, Trent, who she's quite estranged from. And what we discover is that they've had a big argument and their son, Jamie has left a year ago. Um, I set it on Christmas Day 2020. Um, so we're sort of in between the lockdowns and the lockdown on Boxing Day is about to happen. And so she's filmed this beautiful kind of table that she set and there's loads of place settings and she's done a big grotto in the garden. But of course, it's all false. Actually, what she's doing is having a horrible, nasty kind of like dinner on in the kitchen with Trent, uh, who is drinking lots of wine. And so what she realises when she goes for another bottle of gin, she thinks, right, OK, I'm just going to sit down, have a bottle of gin. She sees that there's a very rare message on the home phone. And she realises that it's Jamie, her son, who has called and he just says, mum. And it kind of reverberates around her. And she realises that he's reaching out to her after all this time. And, and so she's desperate to find out where she is. She runs to the kitchen thinking that he might have called the mobiles um she tries to find her phone she sees trent's phone on the counter and he very rarely leaves his phone it's always in his hand and she picks up his phone and she sees loads and loads of messages and the first one she opens up she realizes one of her best friends has been having an affair with him for ages so she completely throws her toys out the cot she's furious and she marches out of the house and sets off to Brighton to find Jamie and that is where our story starts with her life completely in tatters but she drives to Brighton and of course she can't stay in any hotels because it's lockdown and so she hires this kind of shonky Airbnb by the seafront and she's like oh what have I done because she likes her home comforts and it's this horrible flat and her and she's just by herself and that's where the story starts. So it was quite fun putting her like real fish out of water and using the lockdown to my advantage plot wise. <laughs> yes. And she doesn't have anybody to talk to because she discovers that her best friend, in fact, all her friends knew about Trent's affair. But she meets the Seagulls, a group of women who go swimming in the sea together as often as they possibly can. And, and that provides her support group. And this is all about the magic of immersing yourself in life rather than just seeing life through a screen such as Maddie's been doing. It certainly is. And actually, I really wanted to capture the sea as a kind of character in the book because this book really came to me through kind of 
writing, I was writing another book, see, before I was <laughs> writing this book. I was writing a book about how we never talk about death. And it was a kind of romance and it was called Love in the Death Cafe. And I was really enjoying it. And then COVID struck. And I said to my agent, I can't write a book about death. All we're talking about is death. The whole premise of the book is that we don't talk about death. And sadly, now all we are talking about is death. So I had to abandon ship. And I thought, well, what am I going to write about? And I, as you know, I'm a sea swimmer and I lived in Brighton by the coast. And for me, swimming through lockdown and swimming through the year was a complete lifesaver. And I just found this incredible joy, not just from the people that I swam with, but just from the sea itself. And actually, you get out of your life and you get down to the water's edge and this is what I wanted to really kind of capture in the book and everything that has been on land and all the worries that you have in your life suddenly completely disappear because there is this thing that happens by the sea and you really can connect with your inner joy and your inner child and I wanted to really kind of bring that out for all of the characters and it's and it's kind of a draw once you get into sea swimming or once you get onto the beach and you see people really enjoying themselves you kind of creep towards the sea and then you're suddenly sucked in and you're you're hooked which is that and that's certainly what happened for me and I've swum for many years in Brighton but actually when COVID struck it was the first time that I'd swum all the way through the year and so I used quite a lot of the swims that I had actually done in the book so I used the New Year's Day swim and the New Year's Eve swim and the dawn swim and all the kind of full moon swims that we did and so it was really there was lots to play with because of course writing something contemporary when we were in lockdown I didn't want it to be Mm. miserable I wanted it to be about really what we gained through lockdown than what we lost which was you know for me a massive sense of community and a huge appreciation of nature because I think we all really connected with nature in a in a very profound and new way which was very refreshing I thought. There's a wonderful line one of your characters comes out with that open water swimming is the best anti-aging treatment that there is because you concentrate on how you feel rather than how you look. Oh, it's a total leveller. And, you know, certainly for women who, you know, certainly women of my generation and I'm in my early 50s. And I think we've, we've grown up with this whole kind of body image consciousness in everything that's been thrown at us from Jane Fonda onwards and actually the things you go on the beach and nobody gives a monkeys what you look like and it's kind of it's funny you kind of get you know the odd breast brings out and there's kind of a buttock here and it kind of like somebody gets caught in their in, in a comedy kind of like clinch with their dry robe or they're trying to get their their costume off and it's funny and nobody minds at all and actually what you realize is that everybody's got their own beautiful shape and actually it doesn't matter at all it's just about getting in the water and nobody gives a monkeys what you wear either you know it's it's quite fun and and being with that group of people you know all wrapped up with like mugs of tea and bobble hats and shivering but laughing is just a joy it's, it's absolutely wonderful it's really good but one of the things that I really wanted to invoke was that um Swimming in cold water invokes your inner superhero. And I really wanted to include that because actually you wake up in the morning and the alarm goes off and it's dark and you're like, oh, I'm never going to get out of bed. This is horrific. It's really cold and you can hear it's, you know, freezing outside and then you get dressed and then you think you're never going to do it. As you look on the WhatsApp and the chat's going and the people going and you kind of go, all right, okay, I can't be left out. I've got FOMO, you're going to go. Get all your stuff together and off you go and you go down to the beach. And even when you get to the water, you really don't even believe that you're going to strip off and get in. You just don't believe you're going to do it because it's just cold water and it's dark and it's <laughs> and it's and it's the sea and it's freezing and it's you know 
it is December and what on earth am I doing and why aren't I in bed? What, <laughs> what's going on? And then you get to the water's edge and still you don't believe you're going to do it. And then you get in the water and it's a complete reset. And you suddenly realise that if you can conquer that, if you can get into cold water, then you can do anything. I mean, literally anything. And it, and it totally changes the rest of your day. And I always think that when you've been for a swim, you know, you've, you've got a massive win for the day. No, everything else is a bonus because you've just done it. You've done the best thing you can do for yourself that day. It's over and done with. Everything's a bonus. Yeah, absolutely. It is that, you know, you've got something under your belt already. You've achieved something. And, yeah. and you're enjoying the moment with friends. And as you said, that sense of community, that sense of a safe place to share your problems with other people who are there for the same reason as you, just to step out of the, the diurnal grind for a bit. It is something that comes through really strongly in the book. Some of your characters have lost quite a lot in their lives, especially Dominica, who's been widowed. And nobody's pushing her to talk about her problems. But when she is ready, they're there to offer a listening ear. Absolutely. And it's that thing that it's kind of when you swim in the sea and kind of like, I mean, they're not really swimming, swimming. They're kind of bobbing, bobbing. and chatting, which is what I do. <laughs> bobbing and chatting. But I think that that thing that you can just be free in the sea when you're sort of surrounded by water and you're not on land and you're with friends and, you you know, we meet Dominica and she screams into the sea. She puts her face under the water and she screams as loudly as she can. And it's a really powerful thing. That it's got this private thing with the sea that she's letting go of her grief. But the swimming and the camaraderie of the women and her her overcoming her grief part of her journey through the book is that she just learns to to express how she's feeling and she learns to let go and it was about all these women they come and they have a very different relationship with the sea each of them individually but there's a collectivism that I wanted to kind of get across as well but they all find something in the sea that that changes them and you know for Dominica it's the key to kind of moving on with her life and being able to step out and realise that she can make some changes. And for Helga, who is one of my favourite characters in the books, who I kind of, she's brilliant, she's an old woman. It's to, the sea is her sort of comfort blanket, but she's also become a little bit frightened in her life as she's got older and she's and her horizons are closing down. And she used to be somebody who was a around-the-world yacht sailor. So she was this incredible kind of woman in her youth and had this very vibrant kind of feisty independent life and now her horizons have slightly changed and so the sea is a kind of healer for her but it's also a way of moving on so i wanted to give them all very different kind of journeys and claire who um she's my favorite character i i love claire oh, I, like claire. oh well, I, love, I really like claire because she's sort of like many women i think in lockdown she sort of landed up being chief cook bottle washer and you know dealing with children at home and homeschooling and a a uh, husband who was working on a screen all the time and stressed and anxious and she has no she's sort of trapped in her domestic grind and she's really lost her way and she's hit menopause and actually for women my age you know menopause is a huge issue and sea swimming is massively beneficial not just for mental health but for menopause it's huge and Claire finds salvation when she gets to the sea and she starts swimming and she she completely changes her life around because of her connection with these women in the sea so that was a really a joyful thing to write and she surprises herself and she surprises her kids and she surprises her husband and she kind of you know it really it's a real kind of renaissance for her so I thought that was a, a nice thing to do to write something very positive about 
menopause and how she sort of embraces it because she's able to talk about it to these women who kind of reassure her and say, you know, you will get through it and it will pass. And, you know, this is the best thing you can do. And you're not the only one. It's that sense of community again. Yeah, exactly. And lots of people feel very alone with their problems, but actually swimming in the sea and actually, I mean, you all know this from swimming with your gang, and I know this from swimming with my gang, but people come with kind of the craziest weird problems and they can just share and people go oh yeah no I've had that and also you don't really know know these people they're kind of swimming friends but you don't know whether they are CEOs of business you don't know what their kind of life goes I mean it's it's quite a shock when you see some of the people that you swim with fully dressed in makeup and (laughs) oh my goodness no idea you look like that. <laughs> but exactly as you say, when when we're all a little saggy and baggy yeah. and shivering when we've just got out of our wet swimming stuff, we're all exactly the same. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's wonderful. So it was a lovely thing to write. I love, in my books, I like really like writing about women's friendships. And I think that this powerful bond we have of friendship, especially as we get older, is so important because, you know, families can be tricksy and relationships with families can be difficult over time but your friends are the people that you choose to be around you and and actually they are the people who bring you the greatest solace quite often. Another character who finds relief from a medical issue swimming in the sea is Tor. She has rheumatoid arthritis and like Claire she could just rely on drugs to help alleviate the symptoms. But this book is also a warning against relying too heavily on medical drugs, that actually we can take responsibility for our own fitness and health. Yes, and I think that it's, yes, there is sort of like the health aspect, but I kind of think what's really overlooked is um, well-being. And your Mm. sense of well-being is profoundly affected by your environment. And yes, if you've got a medical condition, yes, you know, if you need to take drugs for it, fine, by all means. But there is loads of other stuff that you can do for yourself, by yourself, which is completely free, which will really affect your well-being and your, your mental state. And I think that's really, really important for lots of people to just go, well, actually, a doctor isn't in control of exactly how I feel, I have the power to take control of my well-being. And I think that's really what Tor is doing when she goes in the sea. And so, and there's that mental aspect of it. If you're doing something for yourself, if you're doing something that makes you feel good, that you know is kind of taking down the inflammation in your body that's helping with your symptoms, it's a kind of rolling effect. You know, the more you do it, the better you feel and the better you feel, the more you do it. And it just keeps going in a circle. And you need to put things in place that make that happen. And it can be whatever suits you. But it's really, really important to do something regularly that really nourishes you and nourishes your well-being. And as you point out in the book, open water swimming stimulates the vagus nerve, which is part of what makes us feel better and something that drugs companies have been trying to ape for many, many years. Yes, exactly. A lot of it is to do with the slow, deep breathing. So if you do anything kind of like meditative or you do yoga or anything where you're slowly breathing at the bottom of your lungs is your vagus nerve as well so actually if you wet your face with cold water that stimulates your vagus nerve but your vagus nerve really directly impacts your parasympathetic nervous system so most of the time we're in our nervous system which is the fight or flight bit so we're kind of panicking and we're adrenalizing we're like ah you know got to get to the next thing but your parasympathetic nervous system which kind of kicks in when you're going to sleep is the bit that makes you feel relaxed and calm so as soon as you've got your face 
wet and your neck wet with cold water, then the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in with your vagus nerve. And that's when you start to feel great. So people get very afraid of going into cold water. But A, it's only cold water. And B, the shock of the cold water is only going to last for a very small amount of time. And then you're going to feel great. And then you can get on and start appreciating the beauty of the nature around you. Like me, you are a great lover of the bird life that you get around the sea and around the ponds that I swim in. You describe beautifully what it looks like. I spend a lot of my time just listening to it. And that is an appreciation that we really learnt during the quietness of lockdown. Oh, and it was beautiful, wasn't it? I mean, I live in Brighton and and they're usually the the skies crisscross with planes, but actually not hearing traffic and not hearing planes and actually being by the sea and just seeing all the different types of birds and the different types of wildlife was there. But actually, you were directly responsible for me putting the scene in in Hampstead Pond because we talked, didn't we, about swimming. So I put in a scene where Helga goes to the ponds and swims and it was just really fun. And I was thinking of you when I wrote it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It was all about the ducks and the trees and it's just really lovely. But also one of the things that really sort of came out of this was my massive appreciation of what is actually going on with our water quality And that was something I really wanted to highlight in the book as well. That much as we start appreciating nature, we also start appreciating how much we are destroying the natural world and how horrific mankind is towards the natural world that we're in. And that's a real kind of sobering thought. You have a rare gift for tackling pretty weighty issues and always delivering a really good feel-good book, but one that makes us think... Were you a campaigner right from the very beginning? Was was 15-year-old Josie putting her hand up at the back of class and going, no, that's wrong. We need to address this. No, I mean, I, can't, no, I don't think I would ever say I'm particularly a, a campaigner, but I do kind of go, oh, no, that's not that's not right. I think as a novelist, it's, it's a great opportunity if you've got something you care about, you can put something in. So for mm. me, it was very much about the sewage in the water. I was absolutely outraged about southern water and the antics that they get up to so actually it was very important for me to include that um in the book um i wouldn't say that i'm a massive campaigner but i definitely feel myself being kind of more angry about issues as i get older for sure um and wanting to do something about it you know and, and actually for me the only thing i really can do is write about it so that people are aware of it so i have to be able to find a setting to do something where i really care about the subject and that i'm able to write some meaty things and as you say you know tackle things like mental health and for me sort of living in Brighton we, we see so much homelessness and yeah. I really wanted to know you know I'm quite curious you have to be curious as an officer. I said why are these people on the streets where are they going what's going on and so I kind of learned a lot about homelessness and about why people choose to be on the streets why people don't go to shelters why people get into a situation where they are roofless or where they're where they're homeless and actually it's a really sobering thing because you realise that we're only, all of us, we're only a couple of bad bits of luck or a few bad decisions away from that situation happening to us. And it, it gave me an enormous amount of empathy, actually, for the people who get find themselves in that situation, but also a huge amount of respect for the people in the charities and the people who really try and work to resolve these issues and make things better for the people. And then you feel very humble because I think well, I'm just... I just sit here in my tracksuit bottoms making, <laughs> making up stories <laughs> and you actually do something very real. So, you know, it's nice to be able to write about these issues, but I really am not doing anything massive 
as I should be. Although I did do a lot of charity work, so we'll come on to that in a bit. Well, yeah, you're definitely raising awareness. And, and, and through Maddie's character, we discover, as you say, that that safety net isn't always where you thought it might be. But we'll leave that for the readers to find out. And after the break, we'll be discussing perhaps your most searingly honest but most fiercely positive book, The Cancer Ladies Running Club. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Josie Lloyd. Josie in 2017, you got a shock diagnosis of breast cancer and you, being you, managed to make lemonade out of lemons. Can you take us back to what prompted you to write The Cancer Ladies Running Club? Yes, well, it was kind of, I mean, it was a book I really had to write, but I'll come on to that in a minute. So I had noticed a tiny dimple in the bottom of my breast and I'd been to the doctor twice about it and they'd said, no, 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 don't worry about it, nothing, can't feel a lump, off you go, get a mammogram when you're 50. And I was 47 at the time. And then out of the blue, this kind of message came from the breast clinic and said, we're doing voluntary mammograms for women under 50, would you like to come for one? So Emily, my husband said, yeah, off you go, because, you know, check that thing out. And I explained that I'd seen some change with this little dimple. She said, well, nine times out of the 10, it'll be fine, but you, we will call you back. So, of course, I went back at the beginning of January. The nurse came in and then she gave me this diagnosis. She said, well, you know, we've seen very unusual breast tissue. We're going to have to do a biopsy. We're going to have to do, you know, but it's looking very much like breast cancer. And um, and from that moment, you're just on this roller coaster. And the very worst thing that I found about it was this horrific sense of labelling that up until that morning I had been Josie author, great big life, lovely kids, nice marriage, house, blah, 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 all the rest of love, fabulous social life. And then all of that was levelled. I was just somebody with cancer. And people like put their head on their side and went, Oh no, she's got cancer. And I just say, how I'm just I'm me. I'm I'm still me. Hello. But you feel like you're behind sort of soundproof glass at that point. You feel really cut off from the rest of the world. And I journaled the whole thing because I find that very useful to write things down. And and so I went through the whole experience. And very early on, I was at the school gates feeling really miserable. And Roz, one of the mums from school, said, you know, you've really got to keep fit. And I said, uh, no, Roz, I'm going under the duvet with the chocolate biscuits. Thank you very much. And she said, she said, no, no, come and meet my group of runners. So I went down to the seafront to meet her group of runners who had all been going through various stages of cancer treatment. And I was feeling fairly fragile. And it was a bit like being very heavily pregnant and meeting new mothers because they gave me all the gory details. <laughs> it's, just like, oh, it's terrible. Anyway, but I kind of got cajoled into sort of running with this group of women. And I really loved their gallows humour because they weren't treating me with kids' gloves and they were kind of telling me how it was. And it was actually so refreshing to just laugh about what was going on. And that was just really fun. So about three weeks later, I was down there and there was this guy from the press and he said, oh is this really great you're running the Brighton Marathon 10k and I went what, what? Ross what and she said oh didn't I tell you this was the training group so anyway before my third chemo when I was running bald I landed up running the Brighton Marathon 10k which of course was crazy crazy idea because you know I was quite poorly at the time and and um, I thought well I'm just going to give it a whirl and 
I took my hat off and I was running bald and I was feeling absolutely exhausted and I nearly stopped. And then this amazing thing happened. Runner after runner kept coming up to me and tapping me on the shoulder and saying, I'm clear three years, keep going. I'm clear 10 years, keep going. I'm clear five years, keep going. And um, I kept getting this enormous wave of love and support from all these women. And then this one woman ran with me. And this was really why I wrote the book, because this tiny story, this nugget of golden storytelling was handed to me and this actually happened. So this woman was running. She looked fantastic. She had glossy, dark hair. She, off she was striding. She said, oh, keep going. I, you know, I had stage four cancer and they thought I was a goner. And look at me now. And she was sort of sped past me. And then on the very last turn of the race, she'd waited for me. She said, um, I just wanted to tell you something. And I said, what is it? She said, when I was in my absolutely lowest place and I was in the cafe in the hospital and this woman came up to me and she said I know exactly how you feel I've been there but you mustn't give up hope you've got to have hope and know that your life will be better than ever the other side of cancer and this woman in the cafe had taken off this little butterfly necklace that she'd then given to this runner and said this is a little butterfly of hope and I want you to have it and this runner said I've worn this necklace every day for three years and I've realized now that I have to pass it on and I'm going to give it to you and she gave me in the race this beautiful little butterfly necklace and said this is your butterfly of hope and know that your life will be better than ever the other side of cancer. So I landed up having this hug with her and a few tears and it was just such a beautiful moment of just one of those moments in life that's very small but it's just so perfect and it was just I suddenly realised in that moment that I was going to be completely fine. Somehow, she just gave me permission that I was going to be brilliant to the other side of cancer. And so I kind of took this took this necklace and I ran on and I found my friends and we finished the race and it was all very triumphant. But I suddenly thought as a, as a novelist, I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> That's a great start for a story. But of course, I had all this copy as well because I had my journal and of course, as a vain author, one has when one has 80,000 words of <laughs> word count, you go, oh, I want to do something with this. And so my agent said, well, what, what are you going to write? Are you going to make it a memoir? And I said, no, I want to write fiction because when I'd started the whole process, what I'd looked for was a book because I, I read fiction all the time and I find I get a lot of information from fiction and I learn a lot from fiction. And I wanted a book with a happy ending. I, I was like, well, I've been writing books for 20 years. Where's where's my book with a happy ending about cancer? I don't want to read about a mum dying with tubes up her nose. I want to have a book with a happy ending. And I couldn't find one, so I wrote one. So that's where it came from. And um, and a lot of that stuff about the the runners and the butterfly, you know, it's probably more autobiographical than a lot of my books. It took me quite a long time to make Kira's story different from mine and to make her very fictional. But what's what's the result is this book, The Cancer Ladies Running Club. So yeah, and I'm very proud of it. And it's it was very cathartic to write, but actually the best thing about it has been the messages that I've got from women who have really responded so well to it because they, they needed something to just explain how it is. And it inspired you to contact a jeweller who produced Butterflies of Hope. Yes. Alice at Posh Totter Designs is a friend of mine, and she's, she made me lovely little necklaces that have got a butterfly of hope. So she she sells them now in her shop and online, so you can actually get one. It's actually a really nice thing to give to somebody if they've got a cancer diagnosis, because <laughs> what happens is if you tell people you've got cancer, everybody sends you bunches of flowers, So which is very nice, but suddenly you're then putting these beautiful flowers in jam jars and, you know, and weird receptacles, and then 
two weeks later, when everybody's kind of got over the shock of the fact of your announcement, your whole house looks like a mausoleum. It's it's horrible. And they've got all these kind of flowers to deal with when you're feeling absolutely dreadful. So it's probably better to give somebody something else. But actually, so um, it's been very lovely that the butterfly of hope necklaces have been available. And actually, people have loved getting them and, and giving them to people. And they're round. And they've got a little butterfly on them. And they say hope on the back. And I think that's a it's a really lovely thing. And I love my butterfly necklace. But it's made, you know... It's really interesting, Red, you know, going through an experience like that. It's AR, I discovered quickly that it wasn't the worst thing in the world that could have happened to me because if you're going to lose a part of your body, a breast is not great to lose, but nobody's going to see. It's not going to show on the outside. But it also made me realise, you know, a lot of things about my life. So I wanted to do things differently. And it made me really realise how lucky I was. You know, I had my wonderful Emlyn who looked after me, my friends, my family, you know. And what made me really, really sure was that I really wanted to help people that had that experience but were going through it alone. As far as the post-diagnosis management of one's life is concerned, nobody comes up any more no-nonsense than your wonderful character, Tamsin, who basically tells Kira at the very beginning that she needs to shut her head up and take life in small bite-sized chunks and see how far she can travel. Where did she come from? Well, she's kind of, she's sort of loosely based on my fabulous friend Jane, who uh, was one of the women that I met who's running, who is an elder goth, fabulously so. I mean, she's on, I think she's Purple Jaw Jane on Instagram do check her out she's brilliant she's got her own YouTube channel as well she's called Jane Wills and she is brilliant I mean she's never stopped being a goth ever from when she was like 16 so Tamsin was kind of inspired by her and Tamsin's journey is by no means the same as Jane's but Tamsin was really fun she sort of sprang off the page and it's kind of fun when you have these characters like Helga in Lifesavers they walk onto the page and you go oh actually you're, you're really quirky and fabulous and it was it's it was fun to write somebody like Tamsin who's just so no nonsense she just totally says it as it is you know she takes no prisoners and she's she was so much fun to write you know because you need a character like that when you're for the humor really she's a really good foil to Kira and how Kira is and and she won't take any nonsense from Kira at all and she really gives it she gives it to Kira straight you know she says you've got to sort out your stuff you've got to stop you've got to stand up to the bullies you've got to stick up to yourself you've got to make your life happen how you want it to so you know she was she's brilliant I love her so if, I've written the film script because well, I was um, going to say you now have the joy of wondering who is going to be cast as Tamsin yes exactly well I kind of between you and me I kind of would really like um, Helena Bonham Carter to play her I think she would make a. I think she would make a fabulous Tamsin. I mean, there's lots of women who could play her, obviously, um, and we have amazing actresses. So we're just trying to find our Kira at the moment. But we, yes, we've got a great director. We've got a producer. We've got Lionsgate involved. So yes, it's really exciting. So hopefully, 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 it's going to happen next year, or certainly 2024. It's been really fun writing the script, actually, and I just I really want to see it on screen because I think it would be a a really great great movie and feel good and educational and one for people to go to and come out with that feeling that it's always so great that I love at the cinema where you come out and go, oh, you've laughed, you've cried, you just feel great about the world. That's what I want it to be. And it's going to be under the US novels title of The Bright Side Running Club. Yeah. I mean, 
It's interesting with titles, isn't it? I mean, you never know with titles. You go round and round the houses with titles. And some titles are just a given and they never change. And then some titles you think are the are the titles you're going to have. So my, this book, Life Saving for Beginners, was the Salty Seagulls originally. But then I was told that I couldn't have that because we couldn't have Salty in the title. And the Seagulls, were it was not going to be clear that it was about sea swimming. And then Emlyn came up with Life Saving for Beginners, which I like. But I'm not quite sure people have realised that it's a book about sea swimming. So that's kind of difficult because you kind of try and do something that's lyrical and then it's, <laughs> but you have to be quite specific about what it is. And I really wanted the book to be called The Cancer Ladies Running Club, mainly because I felt very strongly that it should have cancer in the title. But it is very triggering for people. And it is not just a book about cancer. It's a book about friendship. And so, and the, and the Americans with absolutely no way would they have cancer in the title. That was just off the table. There was no way they would do it at all. And so we went out with the Brightside Running Club over there, which has actually been better received in a way, even though the books for the Council Ladies Running Club's done very, very well here. I think maybe the, on, on reflection with some distance from it, maybe the Brightside Running Club would have been a better title here. I'm not sure. But I think that's what we'll do for the film. And of course, it's not your only foray into film. Come Together, which you co-wrote with... Emlyn Reese in 1997 was also filmed and your writing partnership developed into a romantic partnership. Yeah, it was I mean it was a it was a strange one. I mean <laughs> and we look back on it with great fondness and hilarity. Basically Emlyn was my agent's assistant and he had his own group of friends and I had a completely different social life. So we sort of became confidants because we kind of our lives didn't really overlap but we were both doing the same thing and trying to write our second novels and working full time and it was really quite difficult. Anyway, one day we went out after I met him in in the office and we went out and we got absolutely smashed I mean because <laughs> you're 20s you know 20s you can drink like a fish it's fun anyway so we we're out in Soho drinking and we were laughing about our love lives and he was going to give me advice on mine and I was giving him advice on his and we were laughing about how never the twain shall meet and he said well this is really funny we should write this down because at the time there was no such thing as chiclet there was no, nothing sort of for our age group there was nothing sort of 20 something so he said I do what I will go away and write the first chapter. So he went down to Wales with all his friends and he got all of their dirt and all of their terrible stories. And he amalgamated them into this character called Jack. And he wrote this first person point of view from the point of view of Jack chapter. And he gave it to me and I thought it was hilarious. But it landed on a cliffhanger when Jack is at a club and he taps this girl on the shoulder and he goes, hi, my name is Jack. And we don't know anything about her. So I went away and I wrote Amy. So Amy was obviously a little bit based on me, but based on my friends. And I, you know, and my whole purpose of it was to make Emlyn laugh. So when we put the two characters together, we realised that we had comedy gold. And very quickly, we got a book deal on these two chapters and there were eight publishers involved and we were kind of like penniless authors and that money went up and up and it was like winning the lottery it was amazing and then we were on the front page of the newspapers and all my friends were like uh stop the clock hang on a second who's Emlyn where's Emlyn from what's going on with Emlyn who is this guy and I was like oh well, he's my writing partner we're gonna be writing two books together so they're like well whatever you do do not get involved with him because this is your you know this is what you've always wanted you've always wanted to write do not touch him with a bulge pole he is off bounds. So <laughs> Emily and I then started writing this kind of very warts and all book about this 20-something couple who jump into bed together and then realise that they 
actually really like each other. But whilst we were doing that, we were having the world's most Victorian relationship. So we were spending a lot of time together. But we, you know, we, but it was quite confessional. So it was this kind of like, well, did you do that? Was that you? Was that your friend? Did you do that? So we were sort of telling each other all these secrets. But of course, we were kind of slowly falling for each other because we were in this together and we were having this lovely time. And of course, we were finally solvent so we could go out for dinner. I mean, it was amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so we had this lovely time. And then eventually we sort of, I sort of broached the subject to him and I said, oh, you know, are we going to talk about this? And he said, what? And I'm like, well, this, you know, and said, you know, between us. And he said, absolutely not. And left the table. <laughs> That went terribly wrong. Um, and he came back and he said, there's 10 really good reasons why we can't get together. So I stood up and kissed him and that was that. Bagged and oh. tagged. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, 23 years, a very happy marriage later and three girls and seven novels and five parodies. And we're still very much uh, together. And we still write together occasionally. We're writing a script at the moment together. And, um, yeah, I've been very, very lucky. So that's how we got together. And, yeah, and that's how we wrote Come Together. And so, yeah, we wrote Come Together and Come Again. And we went all around the world. And, then and, and yes, then we wrote the film script, which got greenlit by working title, but at which point they announced that they were going to make Bridget Jones's Diary. And then they promptly gave it to working time to television who fired us off the project and then, <laughs> and then made a film which we weren't very happy with i mean we, it was fine it was nice to have the film made but it wasn't our film as we wanted it but that's movies view it's not it's not straightforward and you have very little creative control and as we've heard you've got a great sense of humor about it and and everything I particularly love your parodies. I have children the same age as your kids and you and Emlyn writing parodies of some of our favourite children's books such as We're Going on a Bar Hunt and The Very Hungover Caterpillar just chimed with exactly where I was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was such a laugh. You know, the whole thing about having small children and still wanting to be young and going out and drinking and then coming home and then having a terrible <laughs> we're not going on a bar hunt again because you've got your kids all over you it's really funny of course it was once we'd done that of course the hungover caterpillar made perfect sense about a man who has such a disgusting hangover he has to eat through everything to, to get through it and then we did the teenager who came to tea with that well, that seemed to be a perfect gift with uh, a teenager who just comes in and actually drinks everything and eats everything as the tiger does in the in also that was really fun so yeah we did we did a few of those my favourite one of the ones that we did, actually, was Shabby, which was a kind of response to the, do you remember when the Hooger thing came out in the mm. Danish kind of, and we were all kind of, we had to have candles and grey throws and have everything minimalist and cosy and, you know, that's not our house at all. So we did, so I had great, great fun writing uh, Shabby with Emlyn based on our house. Shabby, you know Shabby when you see it, it's that welcoming pair of pants on the radiator in the hall. It's that half mouldy but perfectly gin and tonic worthy lemon on display in the fruit bowl. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> and it's, but we wrote it in this really serious manner about how the coat hooks should not house any coats. They should have bike helmets on them. So that what you do is you come in the house and you throw your coat at the hook and it lands on the floor. So, you know, it was about, it was really taking the mickey out of our children really as well. So that was really fun. So I like that, yeah. Now, while there aren't any formalised audiobook versions of those, you can find them all brilliantly performed on YouTube. However, the majority of your books have been made into audiobooks. And I know that you're quite an audiobook fan yourself, 
but you do have very, very high standards. Is that why you get such brilliant narrators, such as the one-woman theatre who is Lucy Scott, who narrates Life Saving for Beginners? Oh, she's amazing, isn't she? I mean, it's, I really like to do one of them myself, actually, because I do actually really like it when an author reads their own work. I just listened to Taste My Life through food by Stanley Tucci which is a wonderful listen if you haven't listened to that um but I have to say I am no actress and actually when you when you get somebody who's amazing at all the voices it's just a joy to listen to so yes I it's difficult because you do get sent people and you have tiny little audio clips and you have to make up your mind quite quickly as to which voice you want and it's hard because of course your character's got the voices you've given them in your head so then it's hard when somebody gives your character an accent, for example, that's not one that you've kind of really thought about. So, yes, yeah, it is quite hard. But it's interesting, actually, because in the old days, when Emily and I did our books, the audio rights were kind of a bit of a sideline. But now, of course, audio rights are almost more important than the print rights. And I think we're becoming more discerning about it. I think it's slightly changing the way in which people are writing because, of course, we want to listen to more voices we want to listen to more conversations we want to listen to a more engaging text and a kind of like big long bits of prose don't certainly work certainly as they're narrated by some people so I think it's changing the way in which we're writing a little bit but I think it's a great talent to be able to read a whole book I mean I think it's amazing I love it when people read the books out it's great well, I hope that after the break you'll come back and tell me about some of the books that you've been enjoying either as audiobooks or in print with the books of your life. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Now it's time to share the books of Josie Lloyd's life. So Josie, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? To be fair, there were quite a few. But I really remember reading Lace by Shirley Conran. It was so shocking. And we sort of passed it like this furtive thing around the playground. I remember a friend of mine... (laughs) Because we, we used to, she had a copy that was kind of in chunks. And I remember Susan Hodson took ages with the second section that I wanted. <laughs> so this book, but I mean, it was a total desecration of this book, but uh, to, to, to share it, she was always like renting out bits of lace to the playground. It was ridiculous. But I remember reading that and thinking, oh, that would be great. And I loved all the books of Jilly Cooper. But I also remember Flowers in the Attic as Virginia Andrews is the most salaciously shocking. I mean, it's, it's so on PC now, but I remember that very clearly. So those those Jenny Cooper, Shirley Conrad books, they, they were just magic because it was just this whole other world. And you have to bear in mind that in those days, of course, we didn't have the distraction that we have now of social media. We, your only voyeurism really was through books and television. And actually that whole thing of reading, of getting into a different world was just so exciting to me and that's really why I wanted to be an author so I would put Lace down Shirley Conran as one of my all-time favourite influences. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well I I find this question quite difficult because I'm not a great rereader of books mainly because there's so many books that I want to read I've got such an enormous to be read pile 
that I always find, well, why would I go back to a book? Because I loved it then. And actually, I do really kind of love the fact that I, I've read books at a certain time in my life. In fact, I read The Magus, John Fowles, last summer, um, which I read when I was 18. And I remember being blown away by it when I was 18. And then I reread it and I was like, what's this bit verbose in the middle? There was a bit, And it went a bit crazy by the end. And I was like, oh, I don't remember it being like this. And it kind of, it was kind of one of those benchmark books in my life. And it didn't really happen for me that I should reread it. But one of the books that I have sort of dipped into over the years and, and reread and certainly got my children to read, which because it's such a beautiful book, is I Captured the Castle by Jodie Smith which is one of my favourite all-time books. And I just love the storytelling of it. I love the setting of it. I love the castle. I love the fact that she's sitting with her feet in the sink. And I love, just because it's such a great book opening. And actually, when I've taught creative writing, that's one of the things that I kind of really use as a as a benchmark of how you catch you capture somebody's attention because, you know, you you set a scene and you put a character in somewhere unusual. And it's, it's I just really, I, it's just a warm, cosy, feel-good read to me. So I, I love that one. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I've got two. I've got one that I read recently and one that I'm reading at the moment. I don't know how the one that I'm reading at the moment is going to turn out, but I'm loving it so far. It's called Great Circle by uh, Maggie Shipstead. And you must have heard of it. It's been a big book, but I've only, I've just, it's only just crossed my path. But I love it. I really, really love it. Um, but the book I read in the summer, which I enjoyed immensely, mainly because I was in Mallorca. We've got a house in Mallorca, which we bought years ago. We call it, still call it Camping with Bricks. One of these days <laughs> we'll do it up. But it's kind of like this madly wild kind of Mediterranean place with lots and lots of fig trees. And I read The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak, which I absolutely adored, mainly because one of the, it's sort of told in alternate chapters, but one of the chapters is told by the, from the point of view of a fig tree which I thought was genius and just so evocative. And it's a beautiful story about conflict and about loss and about family. And I, a lot of the subjects that I love to read and I love to write about. And I, it was so uh, evocative. And so reading it in the shade of a fig tree with the smell of ripe figs and occasionally plucking a fig and putting it in my mouth and reading this book felt incredibly decadent as a kind of reading experience. So, um, so yeah, so that was my favourite book of the summer. Well, mine too, funnily enough, and uh, I'm hoping that Elif will come on to the show, just waiting to hear back from her. And funnily enough, Maggie was a guest on the show this time last year. Oh, there you go. Well, I'm loving her. Did you love that book? Because I'm halfway through oh, it. I'm, I'm amazing. It. You, are, oh, okay. you are not going to be disappointed. Oh, great. Okay. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Josie Lloyd, thank you so much for sharing your life in books and for being a guest on the show. Oh, Red, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's time to turn the page on another episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Josie Lloyd, and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books 
or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.